What we're learning about the victim and first-degree murder charges laid against two people, one just 15 years old. And 30 years after one of BC's most baffling mysteries. Michael's in the room right now. I just tell him how much I loved him, how much we've missed him over the years. A new sketch of what missing boy Michael Donahue might look like now. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin with breaking news in connection with the discovery of a burned body found in a Burnaby Park last week. The integrated homicide investigation team announced first degree murder charges against two people, one of them just 15 years old. Ramina Dea joins us with more on this. And Ramina, this is obviously shocking to all of us. What are investigators saying about the arrests? Chris, this is the most serious charge in the criminal code. We're talking about a 15-year-old here and a 21-year-old who are now facing first-degree murder charges, one count each. They are also each facing a count of indignity to human remains. The victim is a 49-year-old woman. Her name is Ma Cecilia Loretto. She's known to family and friends as Maricel or Maicel. She was a newcomer to Canada from the Philippines, a mother. She worked at a food store in Vancouver. Now, what we know here is that the victim and the two accused, they knew each other. Sergeant Frank Jang of IHIT says that investigators believe that they know what happened here. They believe they have a motive, but they can't share those details with the public. What they can tell us, though, is that they believe Loretta was killed in her home in New Westminster on the evening of March 17th. Her burned body was found by emergency responders a few hours later, just before 2 a.m. on March 18th in the park in Burnaby. It was next to a play- playground. It was an invisible site. Now, investigators want to reassure the public, Chris, at this time, that this was isolated. It's not gang-related. It's not drug-related. They don't believe that public safety is an issue. Now, the 15-year-old, he can't be named because of the Youth Criminal Justice Act. We don't know if this is a female or a male, so very limited details there. The 21-year-old is Carlo Tobias. Neither were known to police. People are... are at going to be stunned tonight when they hear a 21-year-old and a 15-year-old facing first-degree murder charges trying to make sense of this. Absolutely. Uh, I'm stunned as as much as you are, as I'm sure uh, as the rest of the community. Uh, And the details, um, there's a time and place, there's a process. Um, You know, uh, we want to provide as much information as we can to the public, to our media partners as, as we can. But we have to first and foremost respect the judicial process. So there will be a time and place. I'm sure those details will come out then. Now, Jang is saying that this case is far from over, even though charges were laid. If you talked to Loretto, um, if you if you saw her, um, if you knew what was going on in her life just before her death, investigators want to hear from you. Back to you. All right. Let's hope somebody knows something. Romina Dea reporting for us tonight. Thank you. Well, while B.C. is on track to massively ramp up our vaccination program, there are concerns that international challenges could derail things. As Richard Zussman reports, both India and the European Union, which produce much of Canada's vaccine supply, are threatening to halt shipments abroad. It's an international chess match. At stake, millions of COVID-19 vaccine with British Columbia, 
just a pawn. In the EU, we also need to ensure vaccination of our own uh, population. The European Union unveiling emergency legislation Wednesday, giving powers to curb Pfizer and Moderna vaccine exports heading out of Europe over the next six weeks. The response triggered due to an ongoing spat between vaccine maker AstraZeneca and Europe. But the impact here could be profound. This is just another day at the office, quite frankly. Uh, We are... Uh, in the hands of international suppliers. We've known this for some time. So far, Britain has received 10.9 million doses shipped from the EU. Canada second globally with 6.6 million doses, followed by Japan and Mexico. The Canadian federal government watching closely. We are concerned with the new reports of restrictions out of the EU or potential restrictions out of the EU, uh, and we will be continuing to work with our counterparts, uh, including direct uh, contact uh, from me to the highest levels. It's uh, full steam ahead. Uh, We're going to continue taking our direction from those who are procuring the vaccine. And it's not just potential problems in Europe. There are reports out of India that they are putting on hold the Covishield vaccine and holding back the AstraZeneca product destined for Canada. We have no indications that the uh, two million doses we will be receiving from the Serum Institute uh, over the coming two months uh, will in any way be affected. But experts aren't so certain. I think there's a reason to be concerned. We don't have all of the details yet, and we don't know whether India or the EU are going to take steps to prevent exports to Canada. And because BC is relying on someone else for vaccine supply, Premier Horgan cautions the province is using it strategically with the hope international trade moves don't put BC into check. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Another troubling jump today in daily COVID cases. We have 716 new infections bringing B.C.'s total to 93,969. 5,573 of those are active cases. Three more people have died. And more than 25,000 doses of vaccine were administered on Tuesday. Keith Baldry joins us now live with more on the vaccines arriving in B.C. And Keith, what can you tell us about the shipments we're supposed to be getting and should we be concerned about any shortages? Yeah, the keywords there are supposed to be getting. There is a, a big number on paper. Uh, we've been sort of inconsistent in the, the timing and delivery of the vaccines. But in terms of agreement, what's on order and what's expected, here's what to expect basically over a little more than the, a little more than a month ahead. Uh, right now, we're going to have 112,000 Moderna vaccines expected to arrive at the end of this week, likely on Friday. More than 162,000 Pfizer, Pfizer vaccines next week. AstraZeneca, another batch of that next week. And then in April, we're expecting another 136 thousand doses of AstraZeneca and then Pfizer shipments will drop a bit to 138,000 weekly. It all adds up to potentially, I use the word, stress the word potentially here, more than a million doses in April. That's a lot, but keep in mind we want at the end of the day vaccinate 4.3 million people twice. So we need 8.6 million doses and we're very still very much at the beginning of the rollout plan, but it's impressive the number of people being inoculated every day generally goes up from day to day. Today, as you mentioned, was a record Uh, and again Fingers crossed that these these expectations are met, these contracts are, are honored, and we continue to get large numbers of doses of various vaccines over the coming weeks and months. Yeah, we've got a long way to go yet. Thanks very much, yeah. Keith.
Well, the B.C. government will be utilizing laid-off hospitality workers to help expedite its vaccine rollout. A new partnership will see more than 1,400 tourism and hospitality workers hired back for non-clinical roles in mass vaccination clinics. Air Canada, WestJet, YVR, the Vancouver Canucks and the Red Cross will all be involved in helping deliver vaccination clinics. Municipal venues, including the PNE, will also help run some clinics by providing staff, furniture and supplies. Right now I'm working at uh, with the YVR at the River Rock casino and so I've already been here for almost two weeks now and to see all these people come in grandparents parents with big smiles so excited to get them vaccinated under the province's accelerated timeline everyone in BC who's eligible for the shot will be able to get immunized by the end of June well, one day after Surrey teachers and school staff found out they were getting vaccination priority, they're rolling up their sleeves to get their shots. As Imadagahi reports, the effort to quickly vaccinate those frontline education workers is part of the response to the persistent and very worrying COVID hotspot in Surrey. It was a long wait, and finally teachers like Shannon Acaster are a priority for the province's distribution of its COVID-19 vaccine. I am a little nervous, but super excited, and it's a huge relief. Up first, educators, support and administrative staff at select high schools in Surrey. The city currently a hotspot for COVID in BC, having also been through scores of exposures in schools. We now have sufficient uh, vaccine supply that we can go directly into what has been clearly our most challenging area. I don't mean schools when I say that, but I mean uh, the Fraser Health Authority and of course educators and those that work in the education system are part of the community and they're at risk as a result of that. The plan is to vaccinate close to 9,000 school-based staff in one week, with the AstraZeneca vaccine reserved for frontline workers. I think a lot of people are a little afraid of AstraZeneca, but they shouldn't be. You know what I mean? It's, uh, we're lucky to be even getting, getting a vaccine. Excited about it. Kind of get, I'm happy this is moving forward. I didn't think it was going to be this quick. I thought we were going to be waiting another month or so, so it's nice to get this started. Those in other schools who may be just as desperate as Surrey teachers for the shot will have to wait for now. The province has yet to mention which school district it will take its vaccines to next. In the meantime, it's urging others to be patient and stay the course. We, of course, need to continue to be vigilant with the health and safety plans that we have in place across our K-12 system. Meaning even after these teachers return to school vaccinated, the physical distancing and current mask rules will stay the same for now. Emadagahi, Global News. The province is clarifying the vaccination procedure that will be in place for those identified as clinically extremely vulnerable. That group includes people at higher risk from COVID-19 due to existing medical conditions such as cancer, transplant recipients and those with severe respiratory conditions. But members of that group say the process is confusing and they're worried that not everyone who's eligible will be included. What about the patients without GPs? What about the patients out of province? What about patients that have recently moved? There's just going to be way too many vulnerable people that fall through the cracks with this system. Patients, um, you know, in these high-risk categories are, are basically being contacted as we speak. A letter has gone out 
to 200,000 of them. We know some of them have already been vaccinated uh, because they are in the age cohorts that have already moved through. And we're, we're very excited. This program has actually moved up along with our age cohorts. Uh, and we're, we're actually ahead of our regular timeline that we had originally committed to. People who are clinically vulnerable but not on the list are being told to reach out to their physician or nurse practitioner about their eligibility. BC's already battered tourism industry is bracing for the possibility of yet another blow to the cruise ship sector. As Grace Key reports, legislation is before the U.S. Congress that would allow Alaska-bound cruise ships to bypass B.C. altogether. Cruise ships are hoping to get back in American waters by July, but there's a few hurdles to get over. First, the U.S. CDC has to lift a conditional sale order. If that happens, there's still the Passenger Vessel Services Act. Essentially, cruise ships leaving Seattle for Alaska have to stop in a B.C. port. But cruise ships are still on hold in Canada until the end of February 2022. In an effort to get its hard-hit tourism industry back up and running, Alaskan lawmakers are pushing for a temporary waiver in the act, allowing cruise ships to bypass Canadian ports. When moves are made like this, even if only on a temporary basis, there's a fear that it might become permanent. And that's when it really could affect our sector over the long term. Instead of amending legislation, the industry is asking for technical stops. For example, a ship would drop anchor off Victoria for a few hours. No one gets on and off, and that meets the requirement to stop at a foreign port. If Canada doesn't permit those technical stops, it increases pressure to amend that legislation in the United States. And there is, there is the risk that that could have long-term consequences to Canada's economy. Honourable Speaker. No, no, member. The future of BC's cruise ship industry was a hot topic during question period. Has the Premier sought guarantees or assurances from his American counterparts that BC will not be permanently bypassed as a cruise destination when the pandemic is over? We've looked at it. It's uh, declared to be on a temporary basis. Should it even make it to the floor of Congress or the Senate. Another suggestion, the tourism industry is calling for a review of the ban every three months. With each ship bringing in more than $3 million to the local economy, many are pushing for an early sailing. Grace Key, Global News. Plans for a doggy paradise in downtown Vancouver. The city wants to give the off-leash area a major makeover, but some want to pause before the plans are confirmed. How the potential cost has some people barking mad. That's next on the NewsHour. Confronting an anti-masker at a local mall, how a construction worker stepped up to help later on the NewsHour. And a boy's camp out for an entire year to honor his friend. Why he's now asking you to join him for some tent time. That's coming up. Right now, though, flush with controversy over a luxury loo, the park board is also upgrading the off-leash area at a Vancouver park in what could be the ultimate mutt-friendly makeover. Plans for the posh pup playground have even canine-loving critics questioning these pooch priorities. Jordan Armstrong went sniffing for answers. Cooper's Park in Vancouver's Yale Town could soon be home to more than just a pricey potty. It could also be a full-on pooch paradise. I mean, there could probably definitely be upgrades. 
But these wouldn't be simple upgrades. The park board is considering concepts that would make even the super dogs jealous. I think it's a great idea. It's a wonderful. Goodbye field for muddy mongrels. Hello destination dog park. Jets, runnels, bubbling boulders and balls, climbing blocks, pools, mounds, tunnels, ramps, designated digging area, safe space for shy dogs are some of the amenities being considered. That would be actually super cool, yeah. But what about the cost? Remember, the toilet project alone could be 645 grand. We asked the park board for an interview and a budget estimate for the doggy theme park, but got neither by deadline. One critic says the optics aren't good given the sorry state of another Vancouver park, namely Strathcona. There are people who are in misery, who are suffering right now, who are living in parks all the time. The government needs to figure that out, like right now, before they start focusing their energy and taxpayers' money on a super fancy dog park. But right now, it's just a concept. The park board wants community input. We were trying to survey citizens when part of our microphone became a chew toy. Bring it back! Oh, there we go! So until this park gets an upgrade, the Global BC Windsock just might be the most interesting thing in this dog park. Jordan Armstrong... <laughs> Global news. Hey. Oh, the mic still works. <laughs> I bet he still submits a receipt for that. As he should. As he Coming up, a BC couple charged in a multi-million dollar Ponzi scheme. The funds were being used to perpetuate the scheme. Coming up, how RCMP say they fooled many victims. And a major investment to house the homeless on Vancouver Island with no discussion about where it will be built. There's a stall uh, tandem dump truck here in Burnaby northbound on Burn Road, just north of Marine Way in the right lane. Traffic is able to get by no problem, just a minor visual distraction. Connect Hearing has strict safety protocols in place. Take your first steps towards better hearing. Book a free appointment with Canada's number one physician-referred hearing healthcare provider today. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a stalled dump truck in Burnaby. BRCMP are investigating an incident at Metrotown Mall involving a man who allegedly spat on people after he refused to wear a mask. RCMP responded to what was a very tense scene around 11 a.m. Monday. They say the 48-year-old West Vancouver man was asked to wear a mask and refused. That's when it's alleged he spit at a bystander. The unmasked man was issued a $230 fine under the Emergency Programs Act. He was arrested and released shortly after. Police are considering possible assault charges related to the spitting. RCMP are reminding people to call police instead of trying to enforce mask rules to avoid altercations like this. Construction is set to start later this year on four new supportive housing projects around Greater Victoria that will create 192 housing units, all with access to round-the-clock support services. And while it is welcome news, Kylie Stanton reports on why there's concern it doesn't deal with a more immediate need. Between the tarps, patio chairs, even the odd decorative touch, these temporary encampments have become more permanent with every passing day. Just not the kind of permanent the campers want or need. 
Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks but for joining us. But newly announced supportive housing good. projects could change that. This is the province and the federal government coming together to say we need these 300 units. We need them now, uh, and we're going to get them built as quickly as possible. Quickly indeed. The locations have been chosen and property purchased, with construction expected to begin this summer. So far, there has been no public consultation as to where they're going. Anything that we can do to support a local government in achieving their goals around housing, uh, we want to do it. And that includes uh, using the statutory immunity power um, to assist them in getting these things done. In Victoria, 45 homes will be built at 865 Catherine Street, 60 homes in the 900 block of Balmoral Road, another 50 in the 100 block of Mears Street, and 37 homes will go up at 1176 Yates. Roughly another 100 units will be constructed in Saanich and Central Saanich. So today's great news, and it's a continuation of uh, a direction that we need to continue in, but we've been working on this for a long time. I'm just hopeful that this model continues. But with completion dates at least a year away, there's concern the projects don't address the current situation in many city parks. It's very frustrating, yeah. You're not going to solve people's problems with them living on the streets, living in tents and parks, living in vans and parks. That needs to be number one. The province and the city of Victoria have committed to securing accommodation for people living outside to decamp parks and other public spaces by April 30th, 2021. It's expected they will move into temporary setups before being eligible for permanent housing. It gets them stabilized, it gets them the health care they need, the supports they need, so that when they move into these new housing units that will be opening next year, they're just going to become neighbours. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. An Okanagan couple is facing charges related to an elaborate real estate investment scheme that bilked investors out of millions of dollars. Global's Shelby Tom has more on the allegations against the husband and wife and some advice from experts so you don't become the victim of fraud. Fitness bums Brian and Shannon Kitts of Summerland are facing criminal charges after allegedly orchestrating a dubious real estate investment scheme in Alberta from 2014 to 2016. The duo are facing charges of fraud over 5,000, theft over 5,000, and laundering the proceeds of crime. Here's how it worked. Recruited investors were told that funds provided to a Calgary-based company called Vesta would be used for short-term high-return loans to those in the real estate industry. Bridge Finance until the real estate deal closed. Investors would provide money to fill that gap and they could do so at an excited rate of interest due to the fact that this type of money isn't available generally through loans from uh, financial institutions. Investigators allege that was all a lie. RCMP say new money was being used to pay existing investors, a Ponzi scheme, until the money dried up and the scam collapsed. So the funds were being used to perpetuate the schemes. In 2019, the Alberta Securities Commission fined Kitts $2.7 million and banned him from trading securities. Kitts knowingly and repeatedly lied to his investors and misappropriated their money, according to the commission. The commission says 38 investors were duped out of more than $5 million. Experts say if an investment opportunity sounds too good to be true, it probably is. When I would hear 20% or even 15% or any of that kind of stuff, 
uh, that's almost like a guarantee, uh, that's not possible. That's too high. You really need to ask those tough questions uh, before investing your hard-earned money uh, into an investment like that. Brian and Shannon Kitts appear in Calgary Provincial Court on April 12th. None of the Canadian criminal allegations have been proven in court. Shelby Tom, Global News. Just ahead, hope for new clues in the Michael Donahue disappearance. Hopefully Michael will recognize the picture of himself and start asking the questions. A new sketch that looks much different than the four-year-old boy who vanished 30 years ago. And an historic appointment to the UN. What makes UBC's Dr. Cheryl Lightfoot perfectly suited for her new role? Traffic is steady north and south over here tonight at the Alex Fraser Bridge, but do keep in mind the intermittent lane closures for overnight maintenance between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. For 47 years, Kermac Collision and Auto Glass has provided unmatched superior customer service and satisfaction. With 18 lower mainland locations, there's a Kermac in your neighborhood. Visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. In a historic move, UBC professor Dr. Cheryl Lightfoot has been appointed as UN representative on the rights of Indigenous peoples. It's the first time a Canadian Indigenous woman has earned the prestigious position. Lightfoot, who is known as one of the world's leading experts in global Indigenous rights and politics, is a dual Canadian and American citizen and a three-generation residential school survivor. Well, 30 years ago today, a four-year-old boy vanished from a busy Victoria playground. Michael Donaghy hasn't been seen since. Now, his parents are making a rare public appearance to release a new age-enhanced sketch of their son as he might look today in the hopes it will bring him back to them. Ted Chernecki reports. As their granddaughter looks on, now silver-haired, Crystal and Bruce Dunahy take to the police podium, saying they never have, nor ever will, give up hope of finding their long-lost son. Today, they're looking for a 34-year-old man who may look something like this. I think it encompasses, between our likenesses and our daughter's likeness, a, a little more realistic than what the previous computer-generated ones had done. Using a specially trained RCMP forensic sketch artist, and with the benefit of seeing how Michael's younger sister has aged, this new hand-drawn version is being distributed worldwide for everyone to see, especially Michael, if he's still alive. His parents were asked, how long would they keep looking? As long as it takes. That was a choice that we made 30 years ago to keep it out there public as long as, to take it this route, to keep it out there so people wouldn't forget so that we could find find Michael and be able to move on. Basically, me and Crystal, we don't like losing. This is one battle we're not going to lose. We're going to keep looking until we get some results. On this day 30 years ago, Crystal Dunahy had a flag football practice at Blanchard Elementary School. The family arrived at about 12.30. Michael was allowed to go to the nearby playground, but was told to stay there. At some point, he vanishes, even though there were multiple potential witnesses. In in my 31-year policing career, uh, this investigation is unparalleled. Uh, I have not seen an investigation, uh, I mean, the circumstances of a four-year-old boy going missing in a park uh, in beautiful Victoria. Uh, And then here we are 30 years later. I never would have imagined that we would be having this press conference here today. A new online tips portal has also been set up at the Victoria Police website. 
Given emerging investigative tools like commercial DNA testing websites and genealogical tracing, police believe someone knows something and can help, even this long after Michael's disappearance. Ted Chernocky, Global News. Some surprising preliminary results from a B.C. Children's Hospital study into the effects of the pandemic on the mental health of children. As Linda Aylesworth reports, the researchers have found that while cases of some types of health issues have increased, others have remained the same. The pandemic has provided researchers with myriad new subjects to study. Like how is it affecting the mental health of children and youths? A lot of the difficulties that we've seen have to do with initiating and maintaining relationships. And that's kind of hard when kids are taken out of their usual social environment. To better understand, BC Children's Hospital Research Institute launched a study early last year and enlisted participants between the ages of 6 and 17. We um, recruited kids and families throughout uh, this past year. So we get a sense of whether or not things changed as we went from one phase to another of the pandemic. The preliminary findings were recently released. Before the pandemic, 28% of parents reported their children had mild psychiatric issues, and 25% of youths self-reported the same. But during the pandemic, 65% of parents observed mild issues in their children. Those are the mild issues um, in terms of having to cope with the changes with the school, with um, sometimes parents losing their employment, with family members being sick. The dramatic increase, the fact that two-thirds of kids are feeling mild distress, wasn't really much of a surprise to Dr. Doan. What was surprising was that we did not measure any significant increase in number of kids who have severe distress, which was the concern. Which is a good thing, but it's also puzzling. As the study continues, they hope to find answers, as well as more participants. Mainly outside of the Lower Mainland, we are still having underrepresentation from the northern communities and the interior. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Still to come, cooking up success during the COVID pandemic. We have uh, many friends in the food and beverage industry that have all told us how difficult it is to start a food business. How Coho Commissary stepped in to help and found its own recipe for success. And in sports, Canada's Vashik Pospisil's on-court meltdown. The backstory on what set him off. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. All right. Let's check in with uh, Yvonne right now, look at weather. A little wet, nasty today, but there's a light <laughs> at the end of the tunnel. Absolutely. We had the heaviest rainfall in the morning. Right now, we're still seeing some cloud cover. There's drizzle out there, and that'll continue actually into the morning hours before we start to see a nice break on the way. And keep in mind, it'll be breezy for areas that are closer to the water. We're sitting at 7 right now with a mainly cloudy sky reported out of the airport, but a closer look at the satellite and radar. We do have a bit of uh, isolated showers just across the southern edge of the island, but there is still that potential for all areas across the south coast to see some drizzle overnight and for tomorrow morning. As we get closer towards the noon hour. We'll start to see some breaks. It'll be dry and temperatures tomorrow climbing up to 10 degrees. Here's a quick glance though and a heads up for all areas in the interior, the southeastern corners, the instabilities there. We're still seeing a few wet flurries and the potential to change over to showers as we get 
towards the noon hour for tomorrow. I bet most areas across the south coast will remain dry over the next few days. Highway forecast, higher elevations in the southern interior, still seeing accumulating snowfall this evening along the Coquihalla with up to five centimeters. Allison Kootenai, as well as the connector between two to two to four centimeters, and the Rogers Pass will still see that chance for some flurries. Now, the northern half of the province will see drier conditions through the day. The next round of rain is going to push in late Thursday and looking ahead towards Friday. Much of the central interior, a few flurries for the morning hours, easing off with the clearing on the way. The one spot across the province could still see those wet flurries changing over to showers will be for the Columbia and Kootenai, Thompson, Okanagan. Mainly cloudy for tomorrow, slight chance for some showers. And then all areas across the south coast. So we'll have cloud cover in the morning, bit of drizzle in the mix. Should start to ease off. We'll have some breaks, especially as we get in towards the afternoon. And then Friday, Saturday, dry conditions. The potential for some rain could pop up. But that's the latter half of the weekend, and that's still a few days out. Tonight's weather window, great shot that was captured in Chilliwack from Jennifer. Guys? Gorgeous. Thanks. Well, a young British boy is looking for a little help from kids around the world. Max Woozy has been camping in his backyard in southwestern England to raise money for a hospice clinic in his community that took care of his neighbor. This weekend, the 11-year-old will hit his goal of sleeping out for 365 days. It's all been in memory of his friend and neighbor who gave him a tent and made him promise to have adventures. As his tent time comes to an end, he wants other kids around the world to join him this Saturday for a big camp out. So it's kind of our time to shine where we can raise money all together and see how proud we can all become. Because I'm proud from doing it, so I kind of want to make everyone else feel proud. The camp out is on children's terms. They can either camp out in their garden or if they don't have the ability to do that or they don't have a garden they can build a den in their bedroom or, and, or a fort and and it's all on their terms and they choose which charity they'd like to donate to and oh, then we should all get involved <laughs> even grown-up kids max's mum says so far children from across the uk australia singapore and the u.s have signed up now i just need a tent that's right. Hey, weather didn't look too bad either. If, you're not, <laughs> if you can't camp in the rain in B.C., you're not camping. <laughs> so true. All right, Squire is here now uh, with a look at what's ahead and that bit of drama today for Vashik Pospisil. Yeah, we'll show you what happened there in Miami. But uh, tonight the Canucks and Jets are playing a game at Rogers Arena. And at practice this morning was Captain Bo Horvath. I want to say surprise. It's more excited, you know. Uh, <laughs> he's a big part of our group. Horvat is clearly a man with a very high threshold of pain who is hoping to play tonight. Wish him and the boys luck. Also uh, later, home cooking at the Coho Commissary, serving up a lifeline for struggling restaurateurs during the pandemic. Featured on Global News Hour at 6, celebrates the innovative minds working together to reignite business throughout our province. Believe BC, brought to you in part by the BCTF, our kids and their teachers, worth investing in.
All right, Squire. Mm-hmm. Will we see Bo? Well, he looked very good at the skate this morning, so if he's not feeling too bad, I think you might see him. And it seems that Bo Horvat has the recuperative powers of Deadpool. Hit him in the foot with a slap shot so hard that he leaves the ice on one leg and collapses in the tunnel on his way to the dressing room, and he shakes that off and shows up at practice this morning like nothing happened. For a while, it looked as though Bo Horvat would be joining Elise Pedersen in the Canucks injury ward. Sure didn't look good when Alex Edler took him down with that blast from the point. But today, the Canucks captain was back on the ace, skating alongside Brock Besser and Nils Hoaglander. Canucks Nation breathing a collective huge sigh of relief as the last thing this team needs right now is for their captain to join Elise Pedersen on the sidelines. Tonight marks the 11th game Vancouver will skate without Pedersen in the lineup. Petey hasn't played since March 7th, but thankfully for the Canucks' sake, it's all systems go for their captain, who appears set to play in his 241st consecutive game. You know, an injury like that, you got to wait for certain results and you got to see how... Uh, you know, how his foot responds to as far as swelling and injury was. So, you know, that's part of leadership is playing when you're banged up, playing when you're hurt. Uh, you know, teammates see that when you play hurt. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that goes on underneath where guys are, are banged up and there's there's definitely guys that probably have a higher tolerance to pain than others. You know, Bo's a big, strong guy. Uh, you know, I think he's built probably for taking a bit more of a beating than... Uh, you know, a smaller guy, I think that's just natural. Um, Following tonight's game against the Winnipeg Jets, the Vancouver Canucks get a well-deserved six-day break. They won't play again until a week from tonight here at Rogers Arena when they will host the Calgary Flames. Vancouver's now played a league-high 36 games. Tonight will be game number 37. Between now and when they return, there's going to be a whole lot of scoreboard watching. Calgary has three games in hand. Montreal has five, while Winnipeg has four games in hand. This time next week, we should have a very good idea of where the Canucks truly stand and how realistic a playoff berth is. Uh, can't wait till after a win tonight for it. You know, it's uh, it's something that I think our guys are going to uh, need and enjoy. That's just for a little bit of time off, a little bit of R and R. Just get it, get yourself uh, mentally just to step away uh, from the game for a minute. Thatcher Demko starts again for the Vancouver Canucks, who would like nothing more than a regulation victory heading into a six-day break. From Rogers Arena, with your ringside report, Jay Janor, Global Sports. Senators and Flames had an early game, and the Flames were leading 1-0 after this goal by Mark Giordano. Took a weird deflection in front. That's the only goal Calgary would score. Third period, Ottawa gets three. You want to know why the Canucks are ahead of the Flames in the standings? Because Vancouver can beat Ottawa and Calgary can't. Josh Norris ties it up. 1-1 in the third period. And this proves to be the winning goal. Chris Tierney off the rebound. Markstrom makes the save. Tierney knocks it in. It'll be an empty netter. The Flames are 2-5 against the Senators this year. Well, the NHL fired veteran referee Tim Peel after he was caught on a microphone basically admitting he called the questionable penalty on Nashville in a game against Detroit to even things up. Getting rid of Peel was easy because he was going to retire at the end of this season anyway. But Peel was essentially fired because he was caught saying out loud what everyone in hockey knows has been happening for years. Evening penalties out, managing games. Some have said the ref should call everything by the book no matter if it's the playoffs, the regular season, or the preseason. But Travis Green sounds like he understands 
why refs don't do that. Standards change from game to game sometimes, and, and depending on the heat of the game. Uh, no, but if you're going to talk about standards in preseason, when you've got you know, half the team's rookies, and, and then you, you're talking about a game seven where you're playing for a Stanley Cup, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that's really uh, going to happen. Now, Tim Peel wasn't the only one caught on a live microphone. Today, BC's Vosik Pospisil was upset in his match with Mackenzie McDonald. Not really because of what was happening in the match, which Vosik lost, but because of a heated argument at a meeting with players and the head of the Association of Tennis Professionals, Andrea Godenzi. Pospisil has been a critic of how the ATP takes care of its players or how it doesn't take care of its players and how it handles money. When Pospisil was playing the first set of his match today, you could see that something was boiling inside him. He was not himself. He was busting his racket. He did an underhand serve at one point. And when the chair umpire finally asked him why he was so upset, he mentioned the meeting. An hour and a half yesterday, the chair of ATP was screaming at me in a player meeting for trying to unite the players for an hour and a half. The leader of the ATP. Get him out here. That's enough. If you, if you need to say something to him, then you need outside this court. Pospisil was also heard to say he would sue the ATP before he continued on with the match, which he lost in three sets. Yeah, he's been a critic of it for a while, and I'm sure he's going to have a lot more to say about it, and so will a lot of players. <laughs> I'm no sure. Doubt. All right, thanks, Squire. Let's check in with Sarah McDonald now for a look ahead to Global News at 11. Sarah? Yeah, so if coming up at 11, more details on the disturbing developments in the province's latest homicide case with two people, including a 15-year-old now charged with murder. Plus, the province's opioid crisis worsens, with last month hitting a grim milestone for overdose deaths. And a security guard caught on camera kicking a man to the ground. The investigation into damning surveillance footage. We'll have those stories and more. Plus, Squire joins us with all the Canucks highlights tonight at 11, guys. Sounds good. Thanks, Sarah. And when we come back, how the commissary, the coho commissary is kicking COVID out of the kitchen. <laughs> Stick around. Well, it started three years ago with a shared kitchen space and a Vancouver entrepreneur willing to empower small businesses to grow. The Coho Collective has since expanded its operations, and as Catherine Urquhart reports, their blueprint for success is thriving during COVID. <laughs> Kaylin Chun mixes together an extra-large batch of traditional Korean kimchi. It's her specialty. I sell them at farmer's markets. I also have an um, online shop on my website. So I do um, home deliveries. Uh, we ship across Canada. I also sell my kimchi to retail stores. The former education assistant is one of 50 food entrepreneurs operating businesses out of Coho Commissary, which manages a kitchen warehouse on East Georgia. We really strive to be here is 
to not only provide uh, the facility that these companies require to operate within, so all of the commercial cooking equipment and facilities and cleaning services, but we really want to be more than a landlord. We wanted to make sure that we provide uh, all of the services that you might need to help excel. Coho also runs an online marketplace and cafe, helps members navigate government permits and access COVID-related assistance. It opened in 2018 and now has three locations in Metro Vancouver, their business model thriving during the pandemic. We have been very privileged to have succeeded during this time based on the sector that we're in. I'm very thankful for our members uh, for their commitment and their tenacity in order to continue to grow and succeed. I'm very um, inspired every day by my own team. Joining Coho costs as little as $400 a month, much cheaper than opening a traditional bricks and mortar storefront. I started looking at the ways to start my own business without getting a restaurant because it was, it was very expensive to find a place and the rent was very extremely um, costly for um, downtown Vancouver area. Um, so I just went online, started looking for open kitchen. Coho's concept is proving hugely successful. In fact, it's expanding again. Their next location opens this summer in Gibson's. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. The Sunshine Coast, too. And did that kimchi look delicious it or what? Yeah, really. <laughs> And it's good for you, too. Yeah. Have to hunt that down. <laughs> All right, Yvonne, uh, we have uh, some brightness coming to us. <laughs> yes, we still have a bit of cloud cover this evening. Chance for some drizzle into the morning hours. Should ease off and some breaks by the afternoon. It'll be pleasant over the next three days once we get past tomorrow morning. Dry conditions and then the latter half of the weekend. It's still a few days out, but if you're making plans, that could be the wettest so far. But for tomorrow, hoping to get some breaks in there and pleasant with highs up to 10 degrees. Well, we bailed out today, but a shout out to the uh, coaches up at the uh, UBC baseball camp who kept it going, rain or shine today. <laughs> Again, we were not involved. We stayed home. <laughs> we stayed home. But Your decision or Will's? <laughs> that was kind of both. Jane was involved too, let's be honest. All right, have a great night, everybody. Thanks for watching. Good night, all.